Welcome to The Conversation at AirSafe.com. I'm your host, Todd Curtis. The following interview was from the 30th of July, 2014, on the Charles Adler Morning Show at CJOB Radio in Winnipeg, Canada. We discussed, among other things, the crash of Malaysia Airlines Flight MH17 and the difficulty of protecting commercial airliners against attacks by sophisticated surface-to-air missiles. Todd Curtis is uh, joining us. He is our airline expert. Uh, he's a defense expert. Uh, he worked for, for the Pentagon. He has uh, worked for Boeing. He knows how to fly a plane, knows how to investigate crashes. And he says that while we're hearing from a lot of people in media that it's unusual to have as many crashes as we've had recently, uh, Todd knows the numbers, knows the data, and says, no, no, it's not that unusual at all. Now, Todd, you're telling us that three airline crashes in one week is, is not rare? It's not rare at all. And in fact, I was rather surprised when I looked into it. Uh, there was a representative from the Flight Safety Foundation, which is one of the largest safety organizations in the aviation world, who stated the other day that outside of 9-11, he could think of few times where there have been three losses of airliners in a week. And I thought, well, gosh, let me see if it holds up to the data. And just looking at airsafe.com's data, which focuses on events causing passenger deaths, I said, okay, let's look at a seven-day period where the airliner was lost and at least one passenger was killed. How many times has it happened? Well, since 1996, when airsafe.com was created, it's happened eight times. Once was 9-11, of course, four on that day. And there are actually a couple of airliner crashes in the days after that, within seven days. And, of course, uh, earlier this month, with starting with MH17. So... Do, do, people, do people say that? I mean, you, you know, you said you were surprised yourself. Do people say this because we know that millions of, of flights uh, are whole hummers? I mean, uh, they, the, the, we may have some excitement in the cabin that we're not aware of or in the, in the cockpit, but to, to the passengers, they're, they're normal. Uh, people fly all their lives. Most, most people say that th there is no safer experience. I'd, I'd, uh, I'd take my chances with you flying a, a plane over just crossing any street in, in Winnipeg and certainly uh, over any kind of drive. We, we just perceive that aviation is so darn safe that I guess we're surprised that we could have three airline crashes in a week. We think it's, well, it must be rare. It is very rare. And the thing that is ho-hum is not only routine flying, but also in most cases when you have several events closely spaced, they don't get the attention that 9-11 or MH17 gets, uh, with rare exceptions. Most fatal airline crashes, I'm afraid, get very, very little news coverage in most of the world outside of the local area where it happens. And that was certainly the case with the eight episodes of three crashes, three fatal crashes in a week that I looked at. And most of them were not very high-profile events. Well, of course, no one has to fill in the blanks. I mean, 9-11, yes, it involved airplanes, but it was so much larger than that. Uh, these weren't, you know, regular plane crashes. This was massive terrorism. This was an act of war. And of course, you could say something very, very similar about MH17. I mean, yes, technically the, the plane did crash, but what happened in Ukraine was not a plane crash. Oh, absolutely. It's something that, that uh, generates a worldwide attention, not just because the airplane hit the ground, but because of the circumstances around it. And more generally, what threat that suggests for everyone flying around the world. And in fact, just this week, uh, the International C Civil Aviation Organization in Montreal had essentially an emergency meeting on this very subject, flying airliners through conflict zones. What should be done about this? Uh, they're already at the point where they're starting special groups to look at this situation. 
And I suspect that very soon there will be recommendations going out to the member nations of ICAO to change the procedures that countries have to either allow or not allow flights in certain areas. By the way, it is still a conflict zone, of course, where you've got the, the battles between the so-called separatist rebels and the government of Ukraine, the separatist rebels being supported by, by Russia. Here's my question. Those remains have now been there for almost two weeks, and we still have a hard time getting international experts to get in there and to offer those remains investigation and, frankly, dignity. Should there be some sort of international organization uh, that says to both uh, the Russian separatists, the Russians themselves, and Ukraine, look, you've got to cease fire. They keep talking about trying to have ceasefires and humanitarian ceasefires, other ceasefires between Hamas and Israel. Should there not be some sort of methodology to get a ceasefire long enough to get the international experts in there to handle those remains, or am I just dreaming in technicolor, as we used to say? Presumably, an organization like the UN should exist to do that sort of thing, or the various other organiz multinational organizations in Europe, of which Russia is a member, that maybe they should be able to sit down and reason together on something like this. But clearly, this is a situation where it's not working. Uh, one of those countries, Russia, is not only a powerful member of the UN, is able to have a veto power over any major uh, changes. You have a bunch of different political uh, agendas at work here, not all of which, in fact, very few of which are compatible with an open and transparent investigation. Well, I mean, I, can you imagine, I don't want to get overly emotional about this, but I'm, a, I'm just a human being. I mean, can you imagine being the, the brother or, or sister or mother or father of, or, or son or daughter of one of the people whose remains is now in that part of the world? I mean, I, I, I don't mean to get even, you know, gross about this, but, you know, I mean, we, we've got we've got an area where obviously you've got animals and animals do what they do, and some of them are predatory. I mean, you've got some of the remains disappearing for that reason. Absolutely, and again, this is uh, has to be devastating to the families and the loved ones involved. And again, MH17 is another illustration of what I've said elsewhere uh, in my career, that there are times when aviation events become significant events and a catalyst for change because it happens to affect a broader community. There have been crashes in conflict zones before. There have been remains left out in the open because of uh, war and other reasons where they couldn't be recovered, and this sort of thing has happened. But rarely has it been the case where there was constant, focused, worldwide attention, as well as multiple nations who have the ability to change the aviation system, also being involved in that particular issue and being motivated to make change happen. By the way, Todd Curtis, while well, I've got you in there, by the way, it's a, it's a tremendous site. It's airsafe.com. Uh, Todd Curtis is with that site, has been for a number of years. He's the architect of the site. I want to ask you this, and you're a former, uh, Boeing pilot, and, uh, you, you've worked for the, uh, for the Air Force. Uh, do you think that there is the technology available, uh, for airplanes to be inoculated against this kind of missile fire, sophisticated missile fire at this height. I'm not talking about, you know, the the, the shoulder stinger missiles. Uh, we, we've got lots of technology for that, and airplanes can equip themselves and some have. But I'm talking about this major league stuff uh, that attacked MH17. Unfortunately, no, because even the most sophisticated 
the most highly armored military aircraft, if they were hit close enough with a missile like this, they wouldn't be able to survive. Of course, in the military aircraft, the option usually exists to eject out of the aircraft or bail out of the aircraft. That's practically not possible for a commercial airliner. And obviously, well, not so obviously, I believe the best defense against this sort of missile is not being in an area where that missile is uh, operating or to destroy those missiles before they have an opportunity to fire at you. And unfortunately, in a civilian context, especially when conflict zones can be any number of countries at any given time, it's really hard to do. A case in point, you can have a country, I'm not going to name names here, decide that, well, we're going to arm our allies in the field with this missile system and not tell anyone about it. And you can have airlines flying over what may be a low-intensity conflict zone without even shoulder-fired missiles. And suddenly, unbeknownst to them, they have a surface-to-air missile system that's sitting under them. So one can be surprised by the presence of these systems, which unfortunately are within the capability of numerous countries around the world. By the way, you talk about uh, pilots uh, being able to eject. You're a former Air Force pilot. Did you ever train to be able to eject? I mean, did you ever do a, a rehearsal, a dry run, where you ejected from 35 or 40,000 feet? Uh, a small correction here. I was an Air Force flight te test engineer. I was not a uh, rated pilot or navigator. However, that said, I had spent quite a bit of time in various uh, military aircraft, including uh, being a backseater in a fighter jet. And certainly, as part of our basic training before we go on those flights, even though it's maybe a, an occasional observation flight, we went through the basic procedures. Okay, in this situation, pull this handle, pull this down, etc. Put yourself in this position. And one can train for those sorts of emergency situations. And if that situation comes up, of course, one hopes one would have the presence of mind to go through the procedure. But as far as uh, sophisticated training to avoid these kinds of things, again, one has to put their life in the hands of the pilots for that particular plane and the designers of that aircraft and trust that they have designed it so that should an emergency occur, you'd have a chance of getting out. If I if I would, I know, you know we're going far afield here, but I'm just a curious person. If I were to recommend that uh, you eject from a plane, let's say you're the engineer, you're involved in a sophisticated operation, I want you to, you know, test it yourself. I mean, can the ordinary person do that? I mean, do you have do you not have to go through a hell of a lot of training before you're physically and psychologically equipped to eject from a plane to 35,000 feet? Well, the most difficult training would be the physical training because, again, without going too far afield, your high-performance aircraft ejection seat is a rather uh, rough ride for those one or two seconds that you're leaving the aircraft. And if you have back problems, if you're physically infirm, uh, the ejection itself could cause serious injuries. Not only that, but once you do have the chute open, you have to uh, have the presence of mind to land properly. And that landing could be on flat ground, it could be in mountains or trees, or it could be in the ocean. So there's quite a bit of training to understand how the ejection system works, how the emergency supplies you have on board might work. And there's also some training that goes into how do you deal with high-altitude situations. And again, without going into great detail, not only does one have to learn about ejection seats, but in a standard military training program, one also learns about the effects of high altitude on the body. Uh, physiologically and mentally. 
So there's a lot that goes into the process of training someone to eject from a high-performance aircraft. And this is the kind of thing that is well beyond what you would expect the average passenger to go through if you're thinking, well, gee, is there a chance that we can put ejection seats in airliners? Fair to say when you were an Air Force engineer, you had uh, no trouble developing a hell of a lot of admiration for those Top Gun jet fighters. Oh, absolutely. Airsafe.com for everything you need to know on aviation. And then some Todd Curtis is the man. Todd, thank you so much. Well, thank you again for having me. Todd Curtis. For more information on MH17, please visit 777.airsafe.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.